it's been my intention as we've been going through the book of Ezra to always uh, go a little bit quicker than what we're going through. And there's always been more information, and I hope you've been as blessed by this as I am. So my intention tonight is to get chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6 done. The reality is we'll probably get through the first two verses of 4. But my intentions, I want to let you know, are to do 4, 5, and 6. Uh, I got two slides I want to show you here tonight. Dustin, if you could put the first one up. A little bit of a reminder of why we're going through Ezra here. You have to remember, this book, Ezra, is a very straightforward book. And what it is, it's about the Jews coming back out of captivity. They've been in captivity for 70 years. They're coming back out of captivity, and they're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding spiritually as a nation, and rebuilding the walls. Now, most of the time when people come and read a book like Ezra, Old Testament, boring. What are we supposed to get out of this? I tell you guys, this is the fun of it. The fun of it is looking at these passages and verses and saying, Lord, what is it that you're trying to tell us here? What are we supposed to be getting and seeing out of this? And I hope you've been blessed as we've gone through the first three chapters of this to find these little nuggets of to say, okay, Lord, I see what you're doing. Remember what it says in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. Jesus says, the whole book is written about me. So when we get a chance to go through Ezra, what do we see that we can apply to their lives the historical context of it. But Lord, what are we getting out of this for ourselves as well? And I hope you'll be blessed by this. Now, a couple quick reminders here as we go. And this week I remembered I actually brought my laser pointer this time. So I will go crazy. I will go crazy with this tonight. Please remember, there's three returns here that are happening. And you will know them from the first one. The first one is the group that comes back under Zerubbabel. That's what we've been talking about for the first few chapters here. After this, Ezra brings a group back. That's in the middle of the book of Ezra and the Nehemiah in his own section there. Now, what's going on, as you can see, the first group, rebuilding the temple. That's what we're talking about here tonight. Ezra, the second half of Ezra, deals with spiritual reforms of the people. Then Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. What I want you to focus on, though, for right now is just this. Look at these gaps of time. 57 years and 12 years. Keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through that. Can you go to the next slide real quick, Dustin? And this, if you like detail, this is for you. If you don't like detail, tune out for just like two minutes and I'm going to need you back. Because what you have here are all the different kings of the historical context. And then what you have down here is all the biblical stuff. You can see the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the temple being completed, etc. Why does God go into this detail? Because this stuff is true. This stuff is real. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a fable. These are actual historical people that existed. The book of James said they had a nature like you and me. So when I read about Ezra and the stand he takes, when I read about Zerubbabel or Joshua, and I think, wow, those guys are amazing. The Holy Spirit taps me on the heart and says, my spirit can be in you just like it was in them. And that's an amazing thing to stop and think about. And all these kings mentioned up top, Do I need to know those? No. But you need to understand the reason God gives you the names of those kings is to show you these are historical events that actually really happened. We have a tendency sometimes in church to take everything and turn it into Sunday school lessons. These are real people with real struggles, with real problems that we can relate to. Remember what Paul wrote to us in Corinthians. All these Old Testament people are our examples Examples of what to do and examples of what not to do. So with that being said, I'm going to leave this up because I'm going to make references to all this tonight. And that way you can follow along. So what has happened is this. Chapter 3, they got the foundation of the temple built. Just the foundation. 
And they got the altar built, and they started earning sacrifices. Remember, the temple had been destroyed by Babylon. So they're finally getting back after 70 years and rebuilding the actual temple. And when they start to rebuild the temple, we left off last week with this. The older people, in verses 12 and 13, they remember the older temple. They're weeping with sadness because this new temple is nothing like the older. The younger people who never saw the old temple are rejoicing because look what God is doing. With that being said, now that there's progress, what's going to happen? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. We have sacrificed to him since the days of Ezradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, why do we put this up here? Because I want to show you. Going from Cyrus to Darius. Please understand how long this is. We're all the way back here now with Cyrus. Darius is all the way up here. This, excuse me, right in there. You can see we're dealing with a span of about 50 years. 50 years. So what's going on? They're rebuilding the temple down in Jerusalem, making progress. The group comes from the north and says, we worship the same God you do. Can we help you rebuild the temple? The leaders of Israel at this time, Joshua and Zerubbabel, say, no. Now, but we worship the same God you do. But do they really? You've got to remember this. Keep your hand here in Ezra chapter 4. Can you go with me real quick? Let's jump back in time a little bit and get an understanding of what's going on. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. If you remember what happened here, you had Saul was the first king of Israel, and after Saul, you had David, and after David, you had his son Solomon. And then what happened after Solomon was the kingdom was split into two, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, there was this guy by the name of Jeroboam that became king of what is called the northern ten tribes. He didn't have Israel in his kingdom. Rehoboam did. So Jeroboam was in trouble. Because if all my people start going down to Jerusalem to worship there, I'm going to lose them. So Jeroboam had this great idea, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there, and he went out from there and built Peniel. Now Jeroboam said in his heart, stop right there, the most dangerous person you can talk to is yourself. Just always remember that. The most dangerous person in the world for you to have a conversation with is yourself. Because when you talk to yourself, it always makes perfect sense. When you talk to yourself, you can start reading other people's minds. When you talk to yourself, you can see their motives. When you talk to yourself, you analyze all the details and come to this wonderful, logical, perfect conclusion. It's dangerous to talk to yourself. So he says in his heart, verse 26, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people would turn back to their lord Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold. What does that remind you of? And said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Did you catch that in verse 28? There's two things there. First off, Satan always likes to repeat something that works. If it's worked once, why not try it again? 
So it worked one time, way back when Moses was bringing the people out of Egypt. Hey, let's go ahead and make golden calves. Hey, let's do it again now, hundreds of years later. I'm willing to bet the sins that you struggle with are things that you've struggled with for maybe weeks, months, years, decades. And the enemy knows the only thing he has to do is just hit repeat on it, and he can bring you down. If you're the type of person that you're going online to look at the scores, the next thing you know your mind is wandering to something else, Satan knows that's how to get you. If you're the gal that's easy to get worried and worked up about stuff, the enemy knows that's how to get you. Why would he change his motives and tactics if it's still working? That's why the Bible says we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to who we are because what happens is my flesh wants to keep doing those same things again and again and again. I want to keep making golden calves. I have to learn not to. I have to die to that. And also what you see in verse 28, you see convenient Christianity. It's too much work for you guys to go to Jerusalem, just to stay here. I think we have really caused a problem with the church in America. We try to make church as comfortable and convenient as possible. It is not about being comfortable and convenient in church. It's about seeing souls get saved. That is all that matters. As we say out here a lot, we're never trying to push who we are. We're never trying to push Harvest Fellowship. We want to promote Jesus Christ. Now, we will give you opportunities for fellowship and encouragement and hopefully edification and outreach, missions, trips, etc. We believe those are all important. But it's never my intention for you guys to walk out of this building saying, Wow, I'm so glad James made me comfortable. I want you to be sometimes convicted in the Lord. Sometimes I want us to think about things and really go home and say, Lord, are you moving and working in my life? Because I see so many Christians just flatlining. I call it plateau Christianity. They've reached a point in their marriage where, hey, it's not that bad. They reached a point in their spiritual life where, you know, I'm not doing anything morally dumb. I'm not doing anything really stupid. But you're just flatlining as a believer. Man, I just want to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper in him. The last thing I want is to try to be comfortable We spend so much time, energy, and money in our lives to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. No, it's about promoting Christ. Please remember that point. So, let's make it comfortable. Let's do the same thing. He does in verse 29, one in Bethel, one in Dan. Verse 30, people are sinning. Next thing you know, he's got shrines. He makes his own priesthood. Verse 32, he's got his own feasts. He set up his own religion. So what happens now is the Assyrians come in and they defeat the northern kingdom and they intermix their people with the Jews. So now go back to Ezra chapter 4. So when these people show up and say, hey, we worship the same God you do, Zerubbabel and Joshua have enough wisdom to say, no, you don't. You have brought in false idolatry from Assyria. You've created your own religion. You have nothing to do with us. Please note, no compromise. The church seems to constantly be compromising to keep ourselves popular and relevant. It's not about compromising. Never compromise the truth. It's about promoting Jesus Christ. So what happens now in verse 4? Since you won't let us join you, verse 4, we're going to go against you. And this is what the chapter is about. We're going to go against you now for the next 80 years years. We're going to do everything we can to dissuade you, everything we can to discourage you, everything we can in verse 4 to trouble you. Now, there's a couple points that we need to make here. First one, if you really want to go deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ, be prepared for opposition. Do you really think the enemy is going to let you move forward without any pushback? 
So you go home and you say, I want my family to be different. The enemy's going to push back. You go to work and you say, you know what? I'm no longer working here for this job. I'm working for Jesus Christ and I'm representing. There's going to be pushback. What can that pushback look like? It can look like your friends. It can look like your family. It can look like the alarm clock when you don't want to get up early in the morning. Pushback can look like the temptation you see on TV or the computer. Those are all things to push you back. Just understand this. You know, we just did a baptism service about a month ago. And one of the things we always say for those that are getting baptized, be prepared. When you go forward, the enemy is going to push back. So, hey, we're rejoicing the altar is done. We're rejoicing the foundation is done. Now what's happening? We have people coming to push back. And so how do they push back? They push back with this letter-writing campaign. You realize nothing has changed in thousands of years. The only thing that has changed is now easier to do your letter-writing campaign. I call them end-of-the-world texts. I get texts from people that have obviously not prayed over it, thought over it, run it through the lens of God in any way whatsoever, and it's just this text that is sent, and it's all emotion and flesh and anger. It's the end of the world. What would have happened if you would have stopped, prayed over it, sought the Lord over it? Does this line up with Scripture? Does this line up with Jesus? I had a guy call me a few years ago, and it was, it was not good. Not good in any way whatsoever. And there was bad things that was getting ready to happen. And I remember telling him, I said, you got your Bible there? And he said, yeah. I said, can you get it out? He goes, well, I don't know how much of it is left. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I took scissors to it. Okay, so I see what we're dealing with here. I said, is Psalm 40 still in there? He goes, yeah, Psalm 40 is still in there. So I said, go to Psalm 40 for me. You guys don't need to turn there. So I said, okay, you're at Psalm 40? He goes, yeah. I said, read the first verse. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard me cry. He brought me out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock. I said, do you believe that? I don't know, whatever. I said, read it again. We just kept repeating this. Read it again. Read it again. Because God's word doesn't return void. Get them back to scripture. You know, I used to get letters, and I still keep them. Now they're not letters. Now I get emails and texts. But I used to get letters that would just be downright attacking downright attacking. When Dawn and I, you know, before cell phones, when you used to have an answering machine at home, we'd come home sometimes on the answering machine, there'd be almost this demonic guttural voices leaving these strange messages, strange messages. I'd get letters in the mail, and I remember one of them I got ended with the word repent, repent, repent. The letters, because let's attack. Like I said, nowadays we do it, it's just easier to do a text or an email. We don't pray through it, we don't think through it. We just say it. Well, these guys, this is what they decided to do. They decided to start this letter-writing campaign, and this is what happens. Verse 6. In the reign of Azarius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also Bijlam, Meredith, Tabal, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into Aramaic language. This is why I put these things up, because I want to show you guys what's going on here. We're up here now. See, 50 years of this. See where it says rebuilding of Jerusalem, stop, accusation against Judah? You may have had somebody that you've been working with for days, weeks, months, maybe years, and they're troubling you. This is going on for decades. Decades. They're trying to rebuild their temple. They're trying to rebuild their walls, trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And these people are attacking back. And how are they attacking back? Well, let's see what they say. Take a look at their letter. We're not going to go through all of it. 
Verse 8, we have the people that are writing it. Verses 9 and 10, it's the list of everybody who is going to do this letter. Note they all get together, different groups opposing it. So what do they say? Well, verse 11, they send it to King Artaxerxes. And this is what they want to let him know. Verse 12, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. So what do we see? That they are rebellious. They are evil. Verse 13, let it be known to this king that this city is built and the wall is completed. They will not pay taxes. So they're rebellious, they're evil, and they're not going to pay taxes. Verse 14, now king, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king dishonored. King, we're only writing this because we care about you. Verse 15, please let me remind you, king, search the record books and you will find that this is a rebellious city. And then verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you have no dominion beyond the river. That's the Euphrates River. King, everything's going to fall apart. So, king, just to remind you, they're rebellious, they're evil, they're not going to pay their taxes. We only care about you, king. Remind you one more time, they're rebellious. And if they build this, everything's going to fall apart. Do you realize nothing has changed in thousands of years? As I mentioned to you earlier, when you want to go deeper, you're going to face opposition. And you know what that opposition is going to do to you? They're going to remind everybody of your past. Guess what? Jerusalem is rebellious. They rebelled against Assyria. They rebelled against Babylon. That statement is true. Do you realize sometimes the greatest tactic the enemy has is just to present truth of your life? Think about that for one second. I had a guy come up to me years ago, and he was really bothered. Bothered because he was trying to be a witness at work. He was trying to be a witness to his family, trying to be a witness to his kids, just trying to be a witness, and no one was listening to him. He was getting frustrated. He was getting angry. So he came up to me, and he said, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be good, and no one's listening to me. I said, what do they say? They all say that I'm a jerk. I said, are you? He stopped. I said, yeah, I am. And it kind of hit him. He's shoving it down their throats. He's pushing. He's not representing love, grace, mercy. He was. Think about this. Think about the things that you get upset about when people say about you. Does it bother you because maybe there's an element of truth in it? Is that maybe true? Or maybe it's so much a part of your past that the enemy won't let you get past it. Please remember this verse if you're a note taker, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This stuff is true. They are rebellious people. Sometimes they would not pay their taxes. That is true. There's things that Satan wants to say about us. Do you realize what Satan does? According to the book of Revelation, I believe it's in Revelation 12, Satan stands before God the Father making accusations against us. Probably most of his accusations are true. But aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ is also before the, beside the right hand of God saying, I got that covered. There's a lot of truth to what they said. What else do we see here going on? They also make up false things. Now, that shouldn't surprise you. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are you when they always say all type of false things against you for my name's sake. When people want to make up a story about you, be careful about getting worked up and upset and realize every time they want to tell a story about you, they're actually blessing you. Your Heavenly Father knows the truth. He knows the truth. So therefore, when they want to make these false accusations, what's hurt? Our pride. But my Heavenly Father knows the truth. The pattern of the enemy hasn't changed. If I want to move forward, he's going to push back. He's going to remind me of my past, my rebellion against God, but I'm a new creation in Christ. He's going to make up false things against me. What am I supposed to do with these letters, though? Well, 
If you remember, there's a king by the name of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19. He received letters. He received letters from Syria that basically Syria said, you can't defeat us. Do you guys remember what Hezekiah did with his letter? He took the letter into the temple of God and he spread the letter before the Lord. Oh, what a great picture. Lord, these people are attacking me. These people are saying things against me. I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to give you the letter. I'm going to give you the problem, Lord. And I'm going to present this letter to you and let you deal with it. And then you know what happens 20 verses later? An angel from the Lord comes down and kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Now, please don't take that point practically. Okay? It's like Joe from work is really in for it tonight. You know, I'm going to take that text he sent me, and I'm giving it to the Lord, and I probably won't see Joe tomorrow. No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Hezekiah set a good example. Someone is attacking you. Instead of getting your feathers all ruffled up, you give it to the Lord. Let the Lord deal with it in his way. Boy, it's probably... I lose track of time. It's probably 10, 15 years ago out here at church. Uh, somebody called me up and said, do you realize there's this other person at church making all these accusations, saying all these stories about you? Oh, man. I remember I was at Ottawa Walmart. Ottawa Walmart when it happened. And don't ask me why, but I just distinctly remember being at Ottawa Walmart, and I got the phone call near the food section. It was too loud. I ended up going over to the women's clothing section to have the conversation. So I'm standing there in the women's clothing section. This guy, do you realize he's saying about this about you? And, man, I was getting all worked up. I got off the phone with him, and I thought, I got I to gotta call. I got to call some of the board members out here at church. So I started calling them. Just tried calling everyone. Couldn't get a hold of a single one. And it was at that moment the Lord really laid on my heart. James, why don't you just take it to me? Yeah, but, but you, don't, you don't get it, Lord. I need to have another human being that is either created out of dirt or a rib agree with me that I am right and this person is wrong. It's not good enough for me to have the creator of the universe on my side. I want a mortal, sinful person to tell me I'm right. Boy, do we not do that? I want a mortal, sinful piece of rib or dirt to tell me I am right. Why? Because we care more about what man thinks than what God thinks. Hezekiah, I'm giving you the letter, Lord. You're going to take care of it, and that's what's going to happen. So these letters are coming in. And so the king gets the letter. In verse 17, he responds. And he says, you know what? Verse 19, I looked. I looked up these people, the Jews that you're talking about, and guess what I've seen? It was found that this city in former times has revolted against the kings and rebellion and sedition has been fostered in it. There's also been many mighty kings in verse 20 that refuse to pay taxes and customs. So he says in verses 21 and 22, tell them to quit. And that's what happens right there. The idea of this building being done, rebuilding of Jerusalem stops. And it stops because there's now opposition. They go up in haste, verse 23, and then everything comes to a stop. Now, please note this, and I've said this point numerous times tonight, forgive me for the repetition. Satan's plans have not changed. So therefore, if you want to go deeper in the Lord, be it in ministry, home, church, work, what have you, or just personally, privately, you will face opposition. Your past will be thrown at you. False accusations will be made against you, and there'll be a group of people that come together to silence you. What are you going to do with that information? You know what's coming. You have to stop at that moment and decide, 
where do I really want to take a stand? What do I really want to do? There's a great verse in the book of Proverbs that says, if your faith falters in the day of difficulty, how small is your faith? If we are so easily and so willing to quickly just give up, man, do we really believe that this is the most important thing in the world? Don and I were listening to a guy give his testimony one time, and he was a, uh, was a Muslim that ended up getting saved. And he was talking about how Christians never came up and witnessed to him, never shared Christ with them. And he said it only could come to two conclusions about that. This is when he was a Muslim before he got saved. He goes, his two conclusions were this. Either, number one, you don't care that I go to hell. Or number two, you really don't believe what you say you believe. Because if you really do believe, if you really do believe in the eternity of heaven and hell, that should change every outlook you have and every conversation you have with somebody. Because if you run into somebody and the Lord starts stirring your heart to start talking to them about the Lord, and you stop, you're really doing one of two things. I either don't care enough about you, or I really don't believe what I think. Now you may say, that's not true. I don't want to say the wrong things. I don't want it to be awkward. I don't want any of that. Yeah, I, I get that. But when you really love somebody, you don't care about awkwardness. When you really love somebody, you, you don't care about the difficulty of it. I just want to present the truth of the gospel to you if God's opening the door. So I've been talking here for a while. Let me stop real quick. Anybody any quick questions, comments about anything that we covered here in uh, Ezra chapter 4 about the temple being rebuilt, the opposition to it, the opposition that's gone on for decades, and this is something that is the Jews were fighting for about 80 years here. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything before I go on? All righty. So now... Please note, and this is what you got to remember, sometimes the way these books are written are not written in the way that we would logically go. But that's okay, because verses 1 through 5 are basically saying this group of Samaritans to the north are going to oppose us. Verses 6 through 23 now give us about 80 years of history of them opposing them again and again. Verse 24 now comes back to the idea of the temple. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued into the second year of the reign of Darius king. Now, once again, some of these king's names are thrown out there, and that may throw you for a loop a little bit. Don't let that throw you for a loop. God is setting the time frame here. What that time frame is, 18 years. So for 18 years, they quit building the temple. They built the altar, they laid the foundation, and they stopped. Why? Too much opposition. Boy, have you ever done that? Oh, Lord, I love you. I'm going to go deeper in you. I'm going to invest in a Bible commentary. I'm going to start listening to messages. I don't know. I'm going to go on a missions trip. I'm going to go on a retreat. I'm going to do all this. I'm pumped and I'm excited. And then you get back and the foundation just lays bare. Too much opposition. Too much difficulty. So what does the Lord do? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Sheathiel, and Joshua, the son of Josiah, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So God says, guys, I'm going to, over these 18 years, give you two prophets that are going to help you. And these two prophets are Haggai and Zechariah. Now, I think at this point, it's kind of important to see what these guys had to say. Can you go with me to the book of Haggai? Bonus points if you find it without going to the front of your Bible to uh, look up where it's at. Hey, yeah, it's only two chapters long. Snuck in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's only two chapters. God sends two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to get their attention. So just to kind of put our little outline back here again a little bit, please note we're right in here now. 
right in here. Temple, it takes 18 years to get done. You can see they stopped working on it because of the opposition. Now, Haggai and Zechariah are two prophets that did the same type of prophecy, but they went about it two totally different ways. I look at it as good cop, bad cop. Haggai is the drill sergeant. No, he doesn't pull any punches. His book is only two chapters long. And he gets right to the point. And what you see here in Haggai is this. He's the drill sergeant. He comes out and says right here in verse 2, chapter 1, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. He says, You have convinced yourself to not work on the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you and yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses in this temple to lie in ruins? See, what was happening was this. The people quit working on the temple. You know what they started working on? Their house. So you got the altar done, the foundation laid, and oh, we can't work on the temple. It's too difficult. But my house looks really, really good. Now, I am not trying to make anybody squirm. I'm not trying to make anybody difficult here. Please don't take it that way. This still happens thousands of years later. I'm too busy. We use that word all the time. I'm so sick and tired of hearing it. Oh, we're so busy. Busy with what? Oh, man, busy with school, busy with sporting events, busy with work, busy with the remodel project, busy with this, busy with that. You know, we just talked on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus, at the age of 12, must I not be busy about my father's work? How many of us have a very well-manicured lawn, have a very nice house, have a very full schedule of calendar of events, but yet we come and say, oh, I just I can't find time to do devotions. I can't find time to serve. I can't find time to go deeper. We have 24 hours in the day, and then we water down our time with the Lord to 10, 15 minutes of that. I'm not trying to pick. And if you think, boy, James, you're kind of getting a little feisty here, I'm just telling you what Haggai said. He said, you guys said we can't finish the temple, but yet, verse 4, you can finish your house. He says, guys, there's a problem going on there. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put a bag with holes. What he's saying is you guys are putting all your time, energy, and effort into things, and it's not working out the way you want. He goes, have you ever stopped and wondered why? Same thing happens today. I just don't know why things don't work out for me. I had these big plans at work. I had these big plans at home. I was going to do this. And everything just kind of seems to fall apart. Do you ever think because maybe you're putting your time and your energy into making yourself comfortable? There's our word. Remember back to Jeroboam. Let's make worship comfortable. We try so hard to be comfortable when it's supposed to be about Christ. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He goes, guys, stop and think. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for me, but indeed it came for little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. I don't know how often I've done uh, financial counseling with somebody, and they make good money, good money. But they look at it as their money, their paycheck, their whatever. So we sit down and do the counseling, and guess what happens with the money? It is just blown away. Where'd it go? It disappeared. Why? Because if you think it's yours, if you think it's all about you, the Lord says, yeah, I can make that disappear pretty quick. Because my house that is in ruins, well, every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withhold its fruit. For I called a drought on the land and the mountains. God says, I have 
to get your guy's attention. And this is what I'm going to do to get your attention. So he says in verse 12 to them, verse 13, excuse me, Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So now they start to listen. They start to respond. And God says, now I can work with you. Now remember what we said earlier? The old guy said, oh, this temple is nothing compared to what it used to be. Go to verse 3. Chapter 2. Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? These guys would have been probably in their 80s, 90s. You now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Josiah, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, the Lord. The, excuse me, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and earth, the sea, and dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. God says, hey guys, this temple that you're starting to put down, this temple is going to be better than Solomon's temple. Why would this temple be better than Solomon's temple? This is the temple that's going to be heavily remodeled by Herod. But this is the temple where Jesus will be at. So he says, you're looking down on this temple? He goes, you don't see the future. How often do we do that spiritually? We look down on what we're going through right now. Remember what it says in the book of Zechariah. We despise the day of the small things where God says, you can't get past here and now, can you? Isn't that what happens when we get depressed and discouraged? The only thing we're focusing on is the here and now. The emotional pain, the physical pain, the spiritual pain. We don't ever look past that to what's happening. These guys are doing the exact same thing. Maybe right now you are in a position of just frustration. You're in a position of, I can't move past what's going on right now. God says, you're so stuck in the here and now, making yourself comfortable, that you don't realize the big picture that's going on out there. See, what was going on in the book of Ezra, these guys got so focused on the here and now, they quit working on the temple because of opposition. They quit working on the temple because of people trying to dissuade them. And they said, well, we might as well just work on our own homes. And that's what they did for nearly 20 years. They just made themselves comfortable where God says, it's not about you, it's about us. Now, anybody got any quick questions, comments here about anything before I close up? All righty. I just want to share this with you real quick here, a little testimony, if you will. You know, I started teaching uh, Wednesday night studies out here in uh, 1997. So I've been teaching Wednesday nights out here for almost 20 years. And I took over as the pastor out here in 2000 when Jim Crager stepped down. So that's for seven, 17 years uh, I've been the pastor. And, and there were so many moments when I thought I was doing it right. You know, we were busy. As a church, I mean, we were doing this, we were doing that. Look at the bulletin, look at the building projects. Look at the amount of people coming. We go from one service to two services, you know, to whatever. Fill in the blank, expend the parking lot, make it bigger. And then you all think that that's, that's good. And I'm going to tell you this. The Lord really started working on me um, a few years ago. And he just had to break me, just completely, utterly break me. Because what was happening is I started realizing, yes, I'm doing all these things for the Lord, 
But am I really doing them for the Lord or am I doing them for how it makes me feel? Because it made me feel good. Now you can say, well, James, isn't that part of it when you do things for the Lord? It also is a sense of joy and it makes you feel good. Yeah, I get that. Hebrews says that was for the joy that was set before him. Christ went to the cross and endured the pain. I'm being honest with me. And my honesty was there's a lot of flesh in that. And I was finding my fulfillment through this place, through this church, etc. And the Lord had to break me of that. Because I started realizing even though it looked like I was investing in my walk and relationship with the Lord, I really wasn't investing as much as I thought. I was investing in me. Because this made me feel good. So a few years ago, the Lord really just started breaking me of that. Just breaking me. And just saying, it's not about you. It's not about this church. Harvest Fellowship's not going to go into eternity. Only the souls that believe in Jesus Christ will. And I just happen to have an opportunity for the season of life I'm in to be able to preach to you guys and teach. And I absolutely love it. So I look forward to more than anything. But the Lord said, James, you've got to disappear. So I started reading on these verses of denying and dying and disappear. And I went through a phrase a few years ago where I would tell people, how how can I pray for you? And I I would say this, I just want to die. I said, but I don't mean that the way it sounds. I want to die to who I am. And I I just want to quit living for me and making myself comfortable. And so what happened was this. There's a few different events that happened. One of them was that I started reading this book on marriage. And there's this one point that really hit her that she shared with me. And it was about how a married couple that are both focused on eternity together would not have time nor energy to fight about things that happen in the world. Think about that. Married couples that are here, most of the fights you have have nothing to do with eternity, with Jesus, or the eternity of heaven and hell. It's about something silly and foolish going on in this world right now. Now, I heard that. And I thought it was a great point. I even quoted it. But it took me a long time to realize that. That really, if Dawn and I are so focused on the gospel, then it's not going to matter what's going on right here and right now. Because our focus is to see souls get saved and to raise these five boys in Jesus Christ. So then we started really looking at what the Bible has to say. Literally, what does the Bible literally say? Now, I'm just going to share what the Lord gave us. Do not take it. Because I know that sometimes in the past I've presented some stuff before and people said, well, you know, James, if you, if you say that that's what weighed on your heart, that must be what the Lord called you to do. I mean, called all of us. No, this is where it's called make your own calling and election sure. You've got to do what the Lord's laid on your heart. So Dawn and I started praying over verses, and there were certain verses that really just hit us. The book of James. That true undefiled religion is, is loving the widows and the orphans. Aren't we supposed to do that? That's what we thought. So we said, okay, Lord, how can we love the widows? How can we love the orphans? And we said, we're going to get into foster care and start helping take care of kids. We started realizing then, hey, the Bible says that you're supposed to just open up your house to anybody at any time and just let people come in and just represent Jesus Christ. And so we started saying, we're just going to start having people over. We're going to do small group studies. We're going to do discipleship. Dawn was just talking the other day. She came up to me. She goes, you realize in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, it says they went from house to house breaking bread communion. She goes, why don't we do that? So I said, let's start that. So I went up to someone tonight, went up to Richard, and I said, Rich, you know, it says in the book of Acts that, you know, we should just go house to house and just have communion with people and just talk about the Lord. I said, we don't know what this looks like, but Dawn and I have decided that you and Betsy are our first guinea pigs. So we're coming over to your house, and we're going to do communion with you and just talk about the Lord. There's a great book, great verse in Malachi 3, verse 16, that says that the Lord listens in on your conversations. And he writes down 
when you talk about him. We used to have people come over to the house, but then it was just kind of like, how are you? How are you? Where were you? You know, just this very American conversation. And we start realizing, yeah, we want to get to know you, but what's Jesus doing in your life right now? So let's talk about that. So don't, let's, let's start doing this type of stuff. So we just start saying, okay, let, let's, let's do this. And we start realizing the Great Commission. Dawn just sent me a great article about this where Jesus said in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples, right? We've been talking about that for a long time. So if that's what he's told us to do, and, and, and don't take this the wrong way, if that's what he's told us to do is go therefore and make disciples, baptizing, teaching the name of the Father, Son, you know what verse. If we're not doing it, this writer said, you probably should have a really good reason why you're not doing what God just told you to do. So if he told you to go make disciples, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? So there's been little things that we've been praying about, and it's like, what does it look like to really do it? And, and I'm not saying this to elevate us. I'm just saying I really want to live the life and say this is what we're trying. So, for example, this year for, for Resurrection Sunday, we normally get together with my family and her family, and, and we get together and we eat ham. Have you ever thought about that, eat ham? On one of the most of the day that the Jewish Messiah rose from the dead? Think about that. You'll eventually get it. Um, there's nothing wrong with eating ham. We're set free. Peter did that in the book of Acts. You know what I'm talking about? But we thought, okay, we could get together with my family. We could get together with her family. But, you know, I, I see my family numerous times through the week. We see her family numerous times throughout the week. It's not that we don't want to see them. This is the most important day that Jesus rose from the dead. So we said, okay, family, what, what can we do to really, what, what should this look like? So we decided on Resurrection Sunday that we, John bought these tracks and then we put them in bags and stuff. And so we just went to Bowling Green, the college, and we just walked the campus and just started conversations with people. Just started giving them tracks. What an end to say, and I don't like the word Easter. I like saying, you know, Resurrection Day. But I understand most people aren't going to get that. So go up to them and just say, Happy Easter, Happy Easter back. And we started thinking the people that are probably at the college on Sunday afternoon, either one, don't really care about what Easter represents, or number two, had no place to go. Aren't those the people that we should be going and talking to? So those, you know, practically in, you know, passing on tracks, trying to be fruitful, trying to do this stuff. Now, let me give my full story here, though. So we had this, this mindset of what we wanted to do. And I, and I remember one summer, there was this summer of, um, there was this one song, and, it, and it's by a band by the name of a Disciple, and it's called Radical. And I just really love the lyrics of that, of what it means to really represent the Lord. And it's like, okay, Lord, this is what we want to do. We're going to do this type of stuff. We're going to open up our house. We're going to do the foster care. We're going to do all of this. And it's not about us anymore. Okay, there, there's a point to my story. The biggest day of the year for me is uh, Dawn and I, usually when we go on a date, we try to go on one date a month. And, you know, we got five kids, so we usually split them up two here, three here, and you got to travel, get back. And we try to get back within about three hours because we don't want to burn anybody out. But there's one day a year that we go and we do all of our Christmas shopping, and we, we go for like the day. We may go for four, five, six hours. We look forward to this day. This is just a day to kind of get around. So this day happens, and we have looked forward to this. we got everything set up. So we're taking off, and as we're taking off to go, we get a call for a uh, foster placement. It's like, okay, so, uh, hey, you know, you've got some placement here. Um, you know, we're over in Perrysburg. Uh, they're over in uh, Hancock County. You need to go get them as soon as you can. It's like, okay, this is going to take a while. Okay, this is my day. 
But it's not about me, Lord, right? It's about you. So we're, we're going to go to Perrysburg, finish up our stuff. We're on I-75. I-75 was under construction. And then someone had the audacity to have a seven-car pileup on I-75. And we sat on I-75 between Perrysburg and BG for an hour. An hour. We couldn't even get off. You had, had to sit there and wait. So now, my day that I look forward to so much, I had to spend an hour of it waiting in traffic. I have to get back to go get foster kids that I want. I don't make it sound that way. So we finally hurry up and get our shopping done, and we go back to my mom's house to uh, pick up uh, a couple of my kids. And so i, I got to get to Finley. i got to get the foster kids. I spend an hour in traffic. I go to my mom's house, and uh, my mom had had surgery earlier that day, just like a month or so before that. So we go and meet her at the door, and she goes, Hey, Jamie, I just want to let you know uh, the test results came back, and it's cancer. So this one day, one day, that I've been talking about for years and praying about of, Lord, I just want to die to myself. I just want to disappear. I want it to be all about you. And you may think, okay, this doesn't mean a whole lot, but this is my testimony so I can share it. Is That one day is like the Lord said, this day is so important to you, James, right? Oh, yeah. I'm going to make you sit in traffic for an hour. And as you're sitting in traffic complaining, you're not going to realize there are seven cars that just had an accident that lives just got changed because you're so selfish. It's like, wow, Lord. I'm complaining about sitting in traffic where there's seven cars that just were in an accident. Okay, James, so you've got to get to Finley to go pick up kids at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, whatever it is. So these kids don't have a home. They're going to come stay now with you. Five boys, Dawn, a stranger they've never met before. Their lives have totally got turned upside down. And you think it's about you? So now, James, you're going to go home, and you're going to go home to healthiness and healthy kids, and here's somebody who has cancer, and you still think it's all about you? I'm just telling you that's what the Lord had to do to get my attention. And so when that happened, I started realizing, okay, Lord, it's not about me in any way whatsoever. Then I started realizing every single event that happens in my life, how does it look through the scheme of eternity? What does it look like to represent Jesus? Because I tell you guys, we are so utterly selfish. And we try to spend so much time making ourselves comfortable. And we try to make church so comfortable and relevant. Do you realize the longer this world goes on, the stranger church should seem to the world? We're going to be really strange people. And I think sometimes what we try too hard to do as Christians is to be relatable. I'm not relatable. The Bible calls me a saint. does not mean I'm perfect. It means hagios. I am separated from the world. So in fact, God says, the way I want you to be a witness, James, is you're going to look so weird that they're going to stop and say, why are you so weird? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. So I wanted to share that because when I saw that in Haggai, and I saw them saying, I'm going to spend all my time and energy building my home rather than the temple, man, I can relate to that. I'm going to spend all my time and energy making myself comfortable and making myself look good to the world when really I, it doesn't matter. I just want to represent Jesus Christ and all that I say and all that I do. And I just think that's what I'm seeing here in the book of Ezra is a group of people that had to learn over decades. It's not about them. It's about the Lord. And I think some of you here tonight, I see it because I talk to you. You realize there's more. Don and I kept saying that for years to each other. There's got to be more than this. That this is what we're supposed to do? Come to church on Wednesday, come to church on Sunday, and just keep repeating this again and again and again? No, there's got to be more. And that's what the Lord just kept laying on our heart, is there's more. 
And it's like, wow, Lord, this is what it really means to live it for you. And we're still in the process of dying and disappearing and denying ourselves. We're still in the process of learning it's more. But I just wanted to share that testimony with you to say, I I think some of you have that desire. And I just encourage if you really want it and you really want to look at it, Come with us. We Not that we haven't figured out, but let's learn it together. And what we're doing is just we keep looking at the book Acts and saying, what are we supposed to do? What does it really look like? And then to go out and live it. And just really ask yourselves, are you doing what they did in Haggai? So focused on the here and now that you can't really realize eternity that's going on. So, But you know what? Uh, sometimes the Spirit says it's time to be done. And sometimes there's little kids looking in through the window that says it's time to be done. <laughs> So at this point, the little kids are winning, and we're going to pray. Would you guys please stand with me? Heavenly Fathers, we come to you now. We want to live it. We want to live it in all we say and all we do. And I don't know what that looks like for everybody here because it's a very individual thing, but we just want to live it. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. And Lord, thank you for your patience in working with us for sometimes days, weeks, months, years, decades. Lord, we just want to die to ourselves and live for you. We love you. We praise you. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, I'll be up here to pray with anybody. If they got anything they want to pray about, you guys have a blessed week. Have a good evening, guys.